Welcome to Investment Moments with Momentum Investments, where we talk to investment professionals and financial experts about investments and savings. We unpack all things investments to give you insights to help your clients achieve their financial goals. I am Lavashni Naika, Communication Specialist at Momentum Investments. Joining me in studio is Paul Nixon, Head of Behavioral Finance at Momentum Investments. We discuss different aspects of investor behavior, such as what happens when we are faced with too many choices and what is investment noise. Welcome, Paul. Please tell us more about your interesting job title, Head of Behavioral Finance. What does this actually mean and entail? Hey, Lavashni. Um, it's good to be back. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, yeah, behavioral finance is just about it's sort of helping people make better financial decisions. So, you know, pre-COVID times, you know, the, the average um, American citizen was exposed to about 5,000 advertisements on the way home every evening. So, you know, companies are becoming very, very good at getting people to part with their money. And, you know, that's really behavioral finance is really designed to help people bridge this gap between their intentions and their actions. You know, so, so everyone wants a better retirement. We want to give our kids a, a great future. But companies are also very, very good at getting us to part with our very, very hard-earned money. So it's all about helping people to make better financial decisions. Paul, I came across one of your articles featured in Money Marketing, How Too Much Choice is Draining Your Brain, where you speak about the amount of choices we are faced with daily. According to the article, you mentioned that research done by Cornell University shows that we all make roughly... 226 food decisions daily as we walk down a food aisle at the supermarket. We are constantly bombarded with different colors, flavors, shapes, sizes, packagings, smells, and all that. Please could you go into more detail about how, what this means and how the human brain works when trying to make a decision? Yeah, so this is a particularly interesting topic. So, you know, we're exposed to about, well, we make about 35,000 choices a day. And our brain is exposed to about 18 million bits of information every single second of every single day, which means, and that's actually increased from about 10 million bits of information, you know, into about 2010. So in the last decade, it's almost doubled. So, you know, our brain is constantly faced with, you know, the, the lights, colors, um, all the stimuli, and it needs to decide what's important information and then so what to let through. And that's, you know, that's the important piece or, you know, the, the thing we need to consider here is when we make decisions, our brain needs to filter out a lot of information. Um, and what we've actually realized is that, you know, a lot of the, um, the, the how our brain struggles with this is that we use energy to make decisions. So, so at um, Paul Glimcher, who is the father of neuroeconomics, has done a lot of work on, on unpacking how our brain um, uses energy to make every decision that we actually, you know, take. I mean, you can think about how many decisions you make from getting up in the morning, you know, brushing your teeth, you know, kind of what to pick, which hand to pick up the toothbrush with. Um, you know, it's just, it's just millions of decisions that we have to make. Those decisions take energy. Um, and Paul Glimcher has really helped us unpack that a little bit. I think with COVID, we are so fatigued that we end up making the same decisions, of what to, especially of what to eat every night for dinner. I know I have, I have that problem. <laughs> there was uh, also another interesting analogy used in your article. Um, if presented with three chocolate bar options, Kit Kat, Crunchy, and Bar One, with Bar One being your favorite, it would be a quick and easy decision to choose Bar One, obviously. However, you mentioned that it becomes interesting when we are faced with 20 chocolate bar options. It could happen that a bar one lover can end up with another choice instead. What causes this kind of confusion and change in 
our behavior. Yeah, so this is really the, the work that, um, that I was referring to from uh, Paul Glimcher. So basically what happens is when you make a, any decision, right? So if you think about, you know, when you're thirsty, for example, if you're thirsty and you're looking and there's a full glass of orange juice and let's say one that's nearly empty, the way you make that decision is your brain uses energy to fire neurons. So when you look at the full glass of, of orange juice, your brain is rather firing about, let's say, 100 spikes or 100 sort of you know, electrical impulses to help you identify that as the preferred choice. When you look at the empty glass, you know, your brain's not going to be firing that many neurons because that's not really what you want. Where it becomes a little bit interesting, though, is if you're looking or deciding between you're thirsty, but, or maybe you're not that thirsty, but you're deciding between a full glass of orange juice and one that's three quarters full. So what happens then is your brain needs to recalibrate that scale. So you might get 100 spikes versus 90 spikes. Now your brain needs to make that decision clearer. So it needs to recalibrate the scale to make it a clear decision for you. And, you know, about 20% of, of the 100 watts of, of energy that our brain uses is, is completely devoted to making decisions. So, so where this sort of, um, where this goes into the chocolate bar experiment is if, if you're tired, the, or the more tired you get, the more wonky your decision making gets because you don't have the energy for your brain to recalibrate that scale properly. So, so what Paul Glimcher did was um, he showed this basically in a chocolate bar experiment. You know, everyone had a clear preference of, of chocolate bar. They were interviewed after the experiment as well because, you know, sometimes we all just feel like a different chocolate bar, right? So you could have a preference reversal just because you feel like something different. But that wasn't the case here. So what was happening was that people actually reported not even seeing their favorite chocolate bar when just faced with, with 20. So, you know, so it's not actually, we would think that, you know, picking your favorite chocolate bar in a lineup would be such an easy thing to do, but it's actually pretty difficult for us when we're faced with, you know, even 20 chocolate bars. And I mean, that's, that's a quite a, you know, that's quite a telling bit of, you know, research that was published because it's something that we, we never really thought was, was that much of an issue and how our decision-making can really get a little bit distorted, you know, if we get tired. But if you, you know, if you sort of spread this out into the world of, of um, you know, we, we might talk about noise a little bit later, but you know, these the process of making decisions and what happens when we make decisions is really a fascinating subject. Yeah. It definitely makes a lot of sense, Paul. When you're tired, you tend to be get confused and sort of everything becomes unclear. But I mean, you think about Woolies or, or pick and pay, you know, when you go shopping, there's a reason that all the sweets are are at the end of your shopping experience when you go towards the till, right? Because you've made You've been making decisions pretty much for the past like 35, 40 minutes. So, so when you actually, your decision-making muscle and your willpower, by, by the way, is actually tied very closely to that. So, so as your decision-making muscle becomes tired, um, you know, and you get to the end of your shopping experience with all the sweets, you're way more likely to put, to jam all that stuff in your shopping cart, right? Because you, you, you run out of willpower. So, you know, Oprah uh, Winfrey mentioned something, actually, which is the most true thing that she's probably ever said, and that... That is, if you go on a diet, you know, take all the bad stuff out of your cupboard. And, and the simple reason, wisdom behind that is that don't force yourself to keep making the decision, right? So every time you open your cupboard, there's a chocolate. Okay, now I decide, I'm deciding not to have it. You know, kind of, the more you make that decision, the more tired you're going to get, and eventually you will eat that chocolate. So, you know, you've got to get these things out of your way if you want, um, you know, you've got to kind of almost preserve your willpower. Think of it as capital, you know, almost like money in a bank kind of thing. And you spend it every time you make a decision. That's a, actually a very good point. And going back to your point about the food down the aisle towards the till, you're also probably a little bit hungry when you get to that point. So you end up buying exactly. something that you sh probably shouldn't be eating as well. So Paul, choosing a chocolate bar seems pretty simple enough though, but how does this complexity in choice translate to investing? 
Yes, I mean, if you think about sort of, you know, 20 chocolate bars, that, that seems quite easy, but we find that challenging. You know, now think about 1,500 unit trusts. So, you know, how do people, you know, what kind of hope do we have if we log on to some kind of, you know, or have a discussion with a financial advisor or log into some kind of website and, you know, there's active, there's passive, there's standard deviation, there's risk measures, there's, you know, all these kind of complexities that are, are associated with, with investments. You know, the people just don't have the processing power to actually go through that. And what human beings normally do in that situation is when faced with a difficult question, we substitute with an easy one. So, you know, it's, for example, you know, a simple example is if, if you're asked to, you know, come up, you know, what is your view on climate change, for example? That's quite a complex question. It's way easier for your brain to think of, well, do I trust Greta Thunberg or do I trust Donald Trump? So, you know, if we substitute or we have this habit of substituting easy questions for difficult ones, if we think about that in an investment context, instead of, you know, is this a good investment? That's a difficult question. A way easier question is what performance did it get last year? You know, and unfortunately, we've just seen that, you know, in, in a number of research papers that have been published, that's a very, very bad way to pick investments because, you know, if you're always going to be asking you know, no, no one strategy outperforms in all market conditions. So inevitably the strategy underperforms and then you end up just sort of chasing your tail and chasing things that have performed well in the past, but not being rewarded in the future for it. So this whole concept of choice and, and you know, sort of having energy to make investment decisions as well, you know, the willpower question is one aside, right? So, I mean, we all just want to eat the marshmallow. We, you know, we've all seen that picture of that little kid sort of staring at the marshmallow and just trying desperately, you know, not to eat the marshmallow, just kind of wait, just wait another five minutes. So I get two marshmallows. It is incredibly difficult for everyone to do. And it's still, you know, willpower aside, making an investment decision and amongst all these millions of different options that we have, you know, is extremely difficult. Um, you know, and you know, that's, that's the problem, you know, energy aside, willpower aside, you know, it, it's a very tricky decision for many investors out there and, and why so many investors have destroyed value by continually chasing their tails. That is very true. And, you know, chocolate bars are something more of a preference. But when it comes to investing, it's something more, you know, unknown to, to an investor. So it becomes more of a daunting task. Yeah, you, you would find that people, again, would substitute other easy questions for those difficult ones. You know, so, so you might, for example, look for a very strong investment brand. You know, so I don't really know if this is a good investment, but I'll have a look at the company. You know, and many investors, by the way, have, have there's a lot of biases, you know, that, that kind of representativeness bias is you know, why people buy, you know, shares in companies, they don't look at the value of the share, they look at the value of the company. And those two things are not necessarily equal. So, you know, just because Coca-Cola is a good company doesn't mean that the share is good value, you know, because paying too much for something is always a bad idea. So that's often a mistake that people make as well, because they, you know, they buy good companies instead of good shares. And those two things aren't always the same. So we have enough to worry about as investors in general, trying to choose the right investments, but at the same time, that we are all overwhelmed by choice. We are also different in our characteristics and nature. I refer to your article, Noise, Financial Advice, and Snow White's Eighth Dwarf, Risky, published in Finweek, where you say life would be simpler for advisors if we came with labels like the seven dwarfs. Like happy, grumpy, we don't come with labels showing how risky our profile would be when it comes to financial planning. Can you explain this further? Yeah, so I think, you know, if we go into, um, we've been talking about, you know, another form of choice is basically judgment. So another very interesting part of, you know, a lot of behavioral science research over the last two decades has been very focused on biases. So, you know, we spoke about representativeness, for example, you know, good company equals good share. But there's another element to this that hasn't been discussed very much. And the father of uh, behavioral economics, Daniel Kahneman, has just published a book called Noise. Um, which is basically the random stuff. So, you know, if we can give a couple of interesting examples here. So, 
there was a very interesting paper that saw that judges were far more likely to give someone parole if they just had a meal or a snack. You know, so, so again, we can actually relate that back to our, our decision-making muscle, if we think about it. So, I mean, that sounds like quite a shocking piece of, you know, kind of shocking revelation, like the justice system hinges on whether a judge has got a full stomach or not. But it actually kind of makes sense because if, you know, if you think about something that's going to require a lot of deliberation and energy, like a, like a judgment, for example, or rather sentencing someone to a period of time in jail, as the day goes on, you know, if a judge hasn't had something to eat yet, they would become more conservative because of the consequences of probably getting that decision wrong. So, so you could actually draw quite a, you know, an easy link between, you know, whether the, whether the judge had enough energy and how, um, you know, how often they actually gave parole. But, you know, if we just look at, if we sort of go a little bit step further, even a lot of other studies as well that have shown that, that you know, sort of getting, often we give different answers to the same question. You know, so, so we make different judgments and choices when faced with the same information. So another another very very interesting study showed that judges were um, sentencing for the same crime. The variance in sentence was between three months and fifteen years, and in this case, I think it was for fraud. So you know, he, it, on average, the justice system undoubtedly works, but that doesn't help the person, the one person that was sentenced to three months versus the other person that was sentenced to fifteen years. You know, so so this whole area of consistencies in decision making, and that's really kind of where the noise stuff comes in. Um, you know, that's really important as well. So, you know, from the financial advice context, that's also important because the same clients we found in a study that we conducted with Oxford Risk were getting different answers for the same problems, you know, for the same financial problems that they had. And that's that's quite an interesting dynamic because, you know, there's just a whole lot of factors that come into, into decision-making and judgment, which, of course, is where the whole noise comes in. And, you know, we relate that to kind of Snow White's um, dwarves because it would be easy, you know, if, if, if we just had a label kind of risky, you know, give this client stocks because they're risky. But life doesn't work like that, though. And it's, it's in judging whether that client is risky, for example, that this variation or, or noise comes in because, this, you know, same clients with the same sort of circumstances, we're getting different portfolios and different equity allocations, which is quite important. It's almost like they have to be measured against certain criteria and that needs to be consistent. Absolutely. Yeah, that's spot on. I mean, that's really the, you know, it, it's in measuring those criteria, but it's also interpretation of those criteria. So, you know, we found that, for example, things like risk capacity. So, I mean, you know, that's the someone's financial ability to take risk. You know, so we can think of things that would contribute to that, like, you know, how much home equity they have, you know, how much their income is, you know, what, what kind of investment portfolios do they have? But it's the interpretation of that stuff that, you know, is different for, you know, if you ask 15 advisors how much weight to place on those things, you would probably get 15 different answers. And in fact, we did get 15 different answers. So, so as an industry, for example, there's some work to be done there in terms of, of eliminating noise. And normally, um, technology is probably one of the best ways to eliminate noise because there's no noise in a machine's decision making, right? Because we train the machines to make decisions. So, you know, like football has VAR to kind of get rid of that inconsistency of judgment. You know, we can very much see technology in, um, you know, in robos, for example, you know, almost operating as a VAR to help check, you know, check the kind of advice we give and just to check that our mental models, you know, are being applied consistently. Paul, you've mentioned noise. How does this exactly complicate things as an investor when we are, when we are already faced with establishing our risk profile and the right, making the right investment choice? What is it exactly? Yeah, so so you know again, it's it's getting it's getting different answers to the same questions. So if a client has a particular set of circumstances and they see an advisor on a Monday, you know, let's say two different advisors, one on Monday and one on Friday, then they might get different recommendations or different answers, or they might see the same advisor between two different points in time. They also might get different answers. So 
you know, the, the problem is not, you know, not everyone should get the same answer. But what we do want, though, is we want to make sure that when the answer changes, it's because the client circumstances are changing and not because of the advisor in question. So, again, when we talk about advisor here, anywhere where there's professional service or sorry, professional judgment in, in a professional service, there's going to be noise. Right. So we saw that judges, for example, again, we're going back to them. Their kind of judgments were changing based on what the, what happened with their football team over the weekend. You know, so so every decision we make is done in a certain context. You know, we we might be in a good mood, we might be under stress. You know, and that can actually that can actually sort of almost distort our mental model of making decisions, and it it rely, sort of translates into noise, right? Which is this randomness in the answers that we get to these questions. You know, doctors as well. Doctors are more likely to, to prescribe opioids at four o'clock in the afternoon than at eight o'clock in the morning. You know, and just because they're tired. So you know, so. You know, all of these things kind of tie up together um, in professional services. And that's why I don't want to isolate financial advice here because it happens across the board. There's always everywhere. Um, but I think it's it's interesting from a behavioral science point of view because the first time in, in, in ever, we're starting to look at stuff like this. Um, and we're not just looking at biases. Remember, biases are easy to predict. You, you're going to sort of do the same thing over and over again, you know, kind of. So if you, if you go back to the judge example, I mean, if someone has tattoos and you think that, you know, someone with tattoos is likely to reoffend, you're always going to give, you know, that um, you're going to deny that person parole. You know, you, you can predict that. But noise is, is unpredictable. You know, so it can be based on a whole number of contexts that you can make those decisions in. And to try and sort of figure out what those different, um, you know, contexts are, um, I think that's, that's pretty cool. And that's a very interesting, you know, field in behavioral sciences these days. So we do, the opposite of noise is consistency. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why technology is is undoubtedly going to play a massive role here in, in eliminating that. You know, humans are very, very good at strategy. So, you know, if we use the example, um, you know, the late 1990s, I think Gary Kasparov was beaten for the first time by IBM's Deep Blue you know, supercomputer, right? And it was the first time machine beat man. Um, and there was this big sort of, you know, kind of AI and this whole sort of influx of, you know, and what happened was, you know, since then, they actually made central partnerships, which were combinations of humans and machines. And no machine has been able to beat a combination of a, of a, a kind of human and a machine. So, you know, so the reason for that is because, you know, humans are good at stuff and tech, and sort of AI is good at stuff. So, so we're very, very good at, at kind of the, the big picture strategy stuff. Machines are very, very good at processing a lot of information. So tactics, right? So strategy and tactics, that's pretty much what we're talking about here. So, you know, think about this in the context of, you know, can a, a financial advisor can't be everywhere. You know, every time the client swipes their credit card, financial advisor can't be there, you know, but Google can be there or is there. So, you know, how can how can we use technology to help us make more consistent decisions and help us demonstrate, you know, what are we trading off? You know, are you sure you want to buy those sneakers? Are you sure you want to book that plane ticket? You know, you're, you're losing out on one and a half years of retirement income. You know, do you understand that kind of thing? So, so the combination of, of like kind of man and machine, human and machine, woman and machine, that, that's kind of what we're looking at here to give more consistent decisions um, and help us make better decisions. Yeah. Well, Paul, this is definitely a fascinating topic. I definitely look forward to catching up with you in the near future to see what you're up to next. Thanks for sharing your insights on investor behavior and for taking the time to chat with me today. Thanks, Sebastian. It was cool being here. You've been listening to Investment Moments with Momentum Investments. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts. 